been uh, saying the last few weeks, we are beginning a new sermon series this, uh, this Sunday in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, which is all about the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I, uh, I'm really excited about, uh, about this series. And I realize that uh, you're coming from all kinds of different places. Some of you are coming at this like brand new. You don't even know what, the, what or who the Holy Spirit is, never mind what kinds of gifts that he gives. Others of you, this is all you ever heard about when you were growing up. You're constantly talking about the gifts of the Spirit. Your mother greeted the mailman in tongues for all that you knew. <laughs> and then some of you, you heard about the gifts of the Spirit, including the more extraordinary ones, but, but you were told that that was all, that all stopped in the first century and any manifestation of them now is, is of the devil. You know, we, we don't do weird, stay far, far away from all of that. Now, for me personally, I grew up in a Mennonite church where we just didn't really talk about the Holy Spirit very much. We certainly didn't talk about gifts like speaking in tongues and prophecy. It just didn't factor in at all. It didn't practice them, didn't preach against them. It just was not really a, a conversation topic at all. But as I kind of left that church background and uh, about a decade ago and, and kind of was exposed to the larger church and, and to the history of spiritual renewal in the church, I've become more and more thirsty for, uh, for knowledge of, of who the Holy Spirit is and, and to receive everything that God would, would have to give me as, as I walk with him. And that's my prayer for you as well, that regardless of where you're coming from, your, your background, your experience, your knowledge, that you would come thirsty to, uh, to hear what God has to say, not just what I have to say. Because I know some people are kind of nervous, like, oh my goodness, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts. It's so divisive. It's so scary. I'm, I just, I want to teach the Bible. That's what I'm committed to every time I stand up here is just telling you what, what do the scriptures say. And so my prayer is that your heart would be open to what God has to say, what God inspired the Apostle Paul to write uh, almost uh, 2,000 years ago about, about this. And so let's pray, and then we'll, we'll kind of introduce you a bit more to the topic. So Lord, um, thank you. Thank you for the words that you inspired Paul to write by your Holy Spirit so many years ago. And we pray that as we spend time with these words, not only today, but in the next couple of months, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to work in us, to work in our church, to, to move in us individually, to reveal the gifts that you have given us, to give us new gifts, to, to empower us to use the gifts that you've already given. Lord, I pray that you would make us to be more, more and more your body, the body that you want us to be. Uh, Lord, thank you for this, this, uh, this, this text and, and for what you will do today. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, the, the text we're in for the next couple of months is 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. And it's the, the single most extensive teaching in the Bible about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The words that, uh, that Paul wrote to the Christians in the city of Corinth many years ago. Uh, Corinth was a prominent city in ancient Greece in terms of its size. It was a regional capital. It was a very, like Antioch that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, it was a very uh, diverse city uh, ethnically, also quite a loose city morally. So there was an ancient Greek writer who actually coined a verb uh, after the city of Corinth. The, the verb was Corinthia. And it meant to fornicate. 
So can you imagine a city being so associated with a verb that you could just invoke the city's name to, uh, to think of the action? Now, you actually don't need to imagine that because Van- that's happened with Vancouver. I don't know if you know this, but the Urban Dictionary says that to Vancouver someone is to make plans with them and then to bail at the last minute. I'm not, I'm not joking. I'm not joking. That's really... That's really what it is. So if that's ever happened to you, you've been Vancouvered if somebody's bailed on you at the last minute. So don't be Vancouverers and don't be Corinthians either. Back, back to Corinth. What you need to understand about this letter uh, and, and Paul's overarching concern in this letter is that a lot of Greek ways of thinking had... Um, well, I, and they'd either seeped and permeated into the church or they'd never really been taken care of. They'd never really been addressed. And, and, and so you, I'm going to make some kind of negative generalities about Greek thinking and culture. Obviously, it's more nuanced than this. But, but there, was, um, th- there were ways in which the Corinthian church had never really reckoned with the change that the gospel was supposed to make. So, for example, the, the Corinthian view of spirituality was quite otherworldly. It was like whatever... Whatever is unseen, that's what's spiritual. That's what, that's what you really want. Anything of the body, anything that's physical, that, that's lowered down. So Greek spirituality, quite anti-body. What's of the mind is, 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 is the priority. And I think you see that kind of thing actually in our day today as well. It comes up in conversations around gender and sexuality in our culture. And we're kind of similar to the Greeks in, in this way. So kind of a very otherworldly, mind-oriented, anti-body kind of spirituality. And then you also had... This, uh, this kind of obsession with status and, and self-promotion and always trying to kind of figure out where you rank in, in comparison with others. And one of the main ways that happened was in, uh, in rhetoric, in oratory. So Corinth would get a lot of very impressive public speakers passing through. And these, these people, they didn't necessarily have a whole lot to say content-wise, but they could wow people with their rhetorical abilities. And earlier on in 1 Corinthians, we find that the Corinthians were actually kind of embarrassed about Paul because Paul didn't really fit that mold. He didn't, he didn't kind of meet that standard in terms of impressive appearance. And so this is a big deal for the Corinthians. And you put this all together and you get significant potential for misunderstanding and misusing the gifts of the Holy Spirit. From, from 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, it's clear that the Corinthian believers had received a whole wide range of gifts from the Holy Spirit, empowerments, abilities, those kinds of things. One of them being speaking in tongues. Now, if you don't know what that is, we're going to talk about it more in the series, but, uh, but essentially it's either angelic speech or unlearned human uh, languages that are spoken by a believer in praise and prayer to God. And oftentimes they're not intelligible by even the person speaking or the, the people who are, are hearing it. It's kind of this, this, this um, the voice of the Spirit in some way speaking, speaking through the believer. Now the Corinthians had grabbed onto this with their kind of otherworldly spirituality and their obsession with rhetoric. They had grabbed onto this gift is the most desirable gift of the Holy Spirit. This is what you wanted. This was the prize. And then you add into that, that Greek value of kind of promotion and status, and you start exerting your superiority over anybody who doesn't have this gift. It's like if you really want to be high up in terms of the ranking, you got to make sure you have the gift of tongues. And you can kind of look down on other people if they don't have it. So that's kind of the state of affairs in Corinth when it comes to spiritual gifts. And this is what Paul is going to address in this letter. And and just to kind of warn you ahead of time, 
What Paul doesn't do is he does not, doesn't kind of shut the whole thing down. He doesn't go, no more Holy Spirit for you. You know, we're turning this thing off. Not that he could do that anyways if he wanted to. But he doesn't do that. Not even with the gift of tongues. Instead, he, he reframes the whole issue. He gives them a new perspective from which to, to see the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that's, um, that's what we're going to do today as, as well. We're not going to talk about what the gifts of the Spirit are today. We're going to do that next week as we get into the next part of the text. But, but today, we're just kind of setting the tone. We're, we're kind of giving you the big picture. Here's the perspective from which we need to look at that. So are you excited for this? All right. Wow, that was way more response than I was expecting. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 3. That's where we're going to start. Paul says, Now, about the gifts of the Spirit. It's introducing a new topic in the letter. Uh, the Corinthians had written a letter to Paul with a whole bunch of different concerns, a whole bunch of different questions. This is apparently one of them. Paul's coming to, to it now in, in this, at this point in the letter. He, said that, he says, Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I, I don't want you to be ignorant of this. I don't want you to base your view of the gifts of the Spirit merely on what comes most natural to you or what's most familiar to you. Uh, instead, Paul says, look, I, I know you had been led astray. You were, you were influenced. Now you were, you were led astray to mute idols. He calls them mute. They don't speak. But at the same time in verse 3, he talks about different Different utterances that someone might make under spiritual influence. So here's the deal. Paul knew that these so-called gods and idols were mute because they, couldn't, they weren't real. They couldn't speak because they weren't, they weren't real. But at the same time, Paul recognized that there were, there, there were examples in the ancient world of spiritual utterances, not of the Holy Spirit. There were things about some of these gifts that were actually familiar to people in, in a city like Corinth. Uh, Apollo, for example, was a Greek god who people believed was, uh, was a god who spoke, spoke to, spoke to people. And Apollo had a very prominent temple in Corinth. So it was one of the main gods that was worshipped in the city. There was also a temple uh, to Apollo in the city of Delphi. How many of you have heard of the oracle of, of Delphi in the ancient world? Some of you have. So, so Delphi was a Greek city not too far away from Corinth, and there was this temple to Apollo there. And, uh, and people would come with different questions, different issues, and there would be, according to some ancient uh, historians, there would, there would be a, a priestess there in the temple. And she'd be sitting on a, on a tripod above a crevice in the ground with, uh, with various gases being emitted from that uh, crevice. And she, in a prophetic trance, would utter uh, oracles, that were often unintelligible, but maybe you had somebody there who could kind of offer a translation or whatever it was. But this, the idea was that this was Apollo speaking through the priestess to whoever was, was coming to the temple. So it sounds, in some ways, a little bit like speaking in, in tongues. So the, the Corinthians were familiar with this kind of thing. 
Now, a lot of people would say, well, it was probably just the gases. I mean, this priestess was just high on whatever was coming out of the ground. But it should not surprise us. That might have been part of it. But it shouldn't surprise us if, if we are readers of the Bible, if there was perhaps a more sinister spiritual reality behind the scenes as well. Because what we see in the Bible is that the demonic can often mimic the supernatural in terms of the forms, the, the way it appears. So in the book of Exodus, uh, God sends Moses and his brother Aaron to go confront the Pharaoh of Egypt to have the Israelites be set free from slavery. And he gives them some, uh, some signs to perform and some, pl some plagues to proclaim over the Egyptians. Uh, and, and at first, uh, Pharaoh is able to call in his own magicians and by their secret arts, they're able to do some of the same things. They're able to turn sticks into snakes. They're able to, uh, to transform water into blood. They're able to make frogs appear. Now they kind of run out of steam at the third plague, which I kind of think is funny because the third plague is gnats. So they, they, they can handle making frogs appear, but, but gnats way above their pay grade, these magicians. They just can't, they can't do that one. But in any case, for the first while, they're able to do the same kind of thing in, in terms of the appearance. And it's in, in the same deal we find at the end of the Bible in Revelation 13, where we read about a beast that comes out of the earth, and he performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. So this, this beast, whatever this represents, is performing signs and wonders that are deceiving people. See, so some people, they look at this and they rightly understand that the demonic, that supernatural evil can manifest itself in various signs and wonders. But what they do is they kind of issue a blanket statement over the whole thing. Like anything that's kind of humanly unexplainable, anything that's kind of weird, anything that's this, this kind of spiritual manifestation, forget it. It's evil. I'm not having anything to do with it. We don't do weird, right? That's kind of the idea. And other people, on the other side of things, kind of look at this and, and they rightly understand that the Holy Spirit does work and signs, and wonders, and miracles, and in forms like this. But what they do is they kind of like do this undiscerning blanket statement that anything that's kind of strange, anything that I can't understand, this is awesome, this is great, this is of God, let's celebrate it, it's supernatural, right? But Paul gives us wisdom here. He tells us there's, there's a different way of discerning what is of God and what isn't. And it isn't about the form, it's not about the appearances, it's about the content, so in verse 3, he says, look, there are people who say, Jesus be cursed. They're not going to say that by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no way they can. I, uh, I watched some videos this past week uh, of some protests happening down in the States in light of a recent possible Supreme Court decision. And, and some of these, um, I, I watched these people who were so full of anger, and like, just like, like, like almost like seething anger, like the vitriol, like you could almost imagine like this frothing at the mouth. That was like the level of anger. And just, just saying such blasphemous, cursing things about Jesus, actually. And I'm going like, there, there's something a little bit beyond human happening here. There's, there's something that feels spiritual, but it's not of the Holy Spirit. There's no way words like that can be spoken by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
But then Paul says anyone who says Jesus is Lord, the only way they can say that is by the Holy Spirit. I don't think Paul means that you literally can't say those words, like, like somehow they're just not going to come out of your mouth. I think what he's saying is that, is that to say those words with any kind of authenticity, to actually believe them, that, that comes by a revelation of the Spirit. You don't tell people that a man who was crucified 2,000 years ago and, and was, was resurrected and he is the Savior of the earth, he is he's the Savior of all who trust in him, King of, of heaven and earth. People don't hear that and go, well, yeah, obviously, like, that makes sense, right? Like, this is... I believe it's true, but it's, it's the work of the Holy Spirit in us that brings us to that place of recognizing Jesus as, as Lord. So what Paul is saying again is that it's not about form, it's, it's about content. It's not just about powers and abilities that, that display God's presence. It's about powers and abilities that exalt Jesus. It's not just any spiritually inspired utterance that we're after. It's words that portray Jesus as Lord. Because again, appearances can be deceiving. I heard a story. It's 100% not true. Um, but here it is anyways. Uh, there's, a, there's a man who was out of a job and he, uh, he went to the zoo and he asked them if they had any work for him. The zookeeper said, well, you actually have a very unusual position for you. Uh, our gorilla died and we don't have the money to replace him. And so we've got a monkey suit. You can put it on. You can impersonate the gorilla for pay. And the guy goes, okay, I'll, I'll give that a try. So for a few days, he's really getting into it. He's swinging from vine to vine. He's loving this. And then tragedy strikes. He gets overzealous and he vaults himself over the fence into the neighboring habitat, which is the lion's den. So he's got this enormous African lion who's just like breathing hot breath on him, and he is terrified. Like he, he's sure that he's a goner, and so he reflexively screams out for help, and he hears the lion urgently whisper, be quiet, you idiot, or we'll both be out of a job. <laughs> there you go. Got a clap from James. Appearances can be deceiving, right? And it's true with the Holy Spirit, with, with gifts of the Holy Spirit as well. That we don't just accept everything without, without discerning. And one of the main ways we discern is with the, the content, whether or not these gifts exalt Jesus, because spiritual gifts are always all about Jesus. So look at where Paul goes next, verses uh, four to six. He says, There are different kinds of gifts. But the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. So here's Paul attributing this whole process of granting and using spiritual gifts to God. And he, and he describes God, he refers to God in three different ways. He, he says that it's the Spirit who distributes them, it's the Lord, which is kind of the most one of the most common New Testament descriptors for Jesus. It's the Lord who receives the service given by the spiritual gifts, and it is God who works in them and in, and in everyone. This is one of the, the clearer New Testament passages about the Trinity. You have God being referred to as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, without ever saying the word Trinity. And, uh, and this is what we as Christians believe, that God is somehow three and yet one. And we don't understand exactly how this works, but we also don't know how to explain what we find in the scriptures without 
the Trinity, that somehow Jesus is fully God and, and yet distinct from God the Father and God the Spirit. And somehow the Holy Spirit is fully God and yet distinct from God the Father and, and God the Son. And, and we might wish that Paul would say a lot more about this, that he would explain it a bit more. But if theologizing about the Trinity was his main concern, he would have written more. Instead, one of his main points here is that when it comes to utilizing spiritual gifts, God is the main agent at work. He's, he's, the, he's the main character here. And a couple, a couple months ago, I, um, I, I said this, that, that if you are a follower of Jesus, then you are no longer the main character in your own life, in the story of your life. And I know that sounds really strange. But, uh, but in Christ, uh, those of us who trust in him have been crucified to a life that is lived for our own glory and for our own status. Which, by the way, is just, it's an exhausting way to live anyways and always lets you down. We've been crucified to that. And we have been raised to a new life. A life that is all about him and that is lived by his power and his presence within us. He is now the main character of our story. And it's the same thing with spiritual gifts. That actually, in the end, he is the main character. He's the one who is, is the power, who is, the, who is the, the, the wisdom, who is the goodness, who is, who is the one working through us. I did a, a short little video with, uh, with my son, Zachary, to show you a little bit of what I mean. I'm so strong. <laughs> Is he though? <laughs> I mean, this is what some people do, right? They, uh, they experience God working through them. They experience the power and they're like, look at me. Look at how amazing I am. Everybody stand in awe of my wisdom and my, my splendor. Now, conversely, it's, it's really refreshing when you see people who do recognize who's doing the heavy lifting and where their power comes from. Um, Giannis Antetokounmpo, whose name I've been practicing for eight years for this very moment right now. Uh, he's one of the greatest basketball players in the world. He's a freak of nature. The guy is six foot 11, 240 pounds of pure muscle, and he, and he just does things that really no human being, I think, has really ever been able to do, or very few have, have been able to do. Uh, this guy's in, incredible, and he's also a follower of Jesus, and, and quite humble about his abilities. So even this past week, uh, in a playoff game, he made this incredible play. He was kind of trapped, threw the ball off the backboard, jumped up, grabbed it, slammed it over a couple of defenders. And they ask him after the game, like, how'd you do that? What's going on? And, he, and this, is, this is what he says. He just goes, I'm lucky enough that God blessed me with the ability to jump. That's what he goes. I just, it's not me. Like, like God gave me this, this ability. Now, what, what, what he doesn't mean, and I, I think what Paul doesn't mean, is, is that we are just passive participants in the process. Obviously, Giannis Antetokounmpo uh, practices, he trains hard, he, uh, he's disciplined and prepared when it comes to the game. Followers of Jesus are, are to be obedient and, and submitted to the Lord and, and are to, to be prepared to be disciplined in this way too. So it's not like we don't have any role to play. It's just that we have to recognize that when we use the gifts that God has given us, whether it's, it's preaching or, or, or exercising mercy or it's leading or giving or uh, giving people words of knowledge, that in the end it is God at work in and through us. 
Verse 7 makes this really clear. To each one, Paul says, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. The manifestation of the Spirit. Like, like when we use our gifts, it is actually the holy, almighty presence of God coming out to play. Going public through us, making himself known. It's a manifestation of the Spirit. And there are a couple of implications of this. One is that if that's what our gifts are, if it is God actually making himself known through us, then for us to use the gifts we are in the way that we are meant to means that we've got to be fully dependent on his strength and his power. That the more we're dependent on our own strength, the more we actually impede the work of the Holy Spirit. And I, I, conf- I am confronted with this on basically a weekly basis when I preach. I would say that, that preaching, publicly teaching the scriptures, is the primary, foremost gift that the Holy Spirit has, has given me. And I, I say that also because it's not something that came natural to me. It's not something that I was always like, yeah, I'm awesome at this. And I'm not saying I'm awesome at it now either, but I'm just saying it wasn't something that came natural to me. I shared with you a couple weeks ago about my first sermon, which was more an exposition of Rocky III than any kind of biblical teaching. But it wasn't just that the content was an issue and needed resolving. It was that the whole idea of public speaking was terrifying to me, even as a young adult, whenever I had to do it. You know what they say, right? Like most people's number one fear is public speaking. Number two is death. So most people would rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy at a, at a funeral. That's a bit how I felt. I was terrified of public speaking. I would, um, I mean, I would stammer. I would say, um, every second word. I, my knees would be doing this the whole time, right? Just, like, it was good. I, I, when the couple times I preached early on, it was like behind big, heavy wooden pulpits so nobody could see what was going on down there. My stomach would be tied up in knots like hours in advance. I just found the whole, I, I would, I'd write everything out that I was going to say and stick really close to it. I mean, it was just not something I enjoyed at all. I told people as a young adult, I think I'd like to be a pastor because I'd like to help people grow in the Lord, but I know that that's one thing I'll never be any good at is public speaking. I think one of the, one of the events that kind of switched it was when I was invited to speak at a small little Bible camp in rural Manitoba after graduating from college. Apparently, they'd take anyone. Like, oh, you're 20 years old and you're terrible at this? Please come, do 10 messages. 10, not just like try one, like do 10 messages. And so I said, yes, I stepped out in faith. And there are things here, by the way, that I think I might come back to through this series in terms of how we discover and use our gifts. But, but I said, yes, I stepped out in faith. It was terrifying, but I showed up. It was a small camp. There were like 20 kids there. But, but I experienced the manifestation of the Holy Spirit working through me. I, I discovered a joy in, uh, in, in teaching the scriptures. As going through the life of Abraham. I found so much joy in this. People were responding. They were, they were receiving these, these words. I started to feel more and more comfortable up there. And I was like, whoa. Like, like it, was, it was a moment of, of thinking, maybe this is a gift that God has given me. Now, it's, it's 16 years later. I've, I've preached hundreds and hundreds of sermons to much larger crowds than that. I don't get nervous anymore. You don't scare me one bit <laughs> at all. And so I, I, you know, I, I feel fairly confident. This is a gift that God has, has given me. But sometimes I get a little bit too confident. And I think, oh yeah, I've, I've got this. 
Like, this is gonna be a good sermon. I know exactly what I'm gonna say. This, this is gonna be awesome. It's gonna go viral for sure. Christianity Today will probably wanna do a cover story on me based on this sermon. I should probably go get a haircut for the inevitable photo shoot that's, uh, that's coming. And, uh, and then what happens, as, as soon as I start to slip into that even a little bit, is that I just get blocked. Like, I'm working on my sermon, and I got nothing. I thought I knew exactly what I was going to say. Turns out I'm laboring for hours to get one paragraph ready. I mean, it's just not flowing at all. This happened to me multiple times, even this, this past week. Not that I thought I was going to be on the cover of Christianity Today, but it just, it just happens, right? And wh- what does that force you to do? It forces me to get on my knees, It forces me to go to God and say to God, look, I'm supposed to stand up there on Sunday and if you don't show up and if you don't give me the words to say, it's going to be pretty bad. You know, it's it's going to be pretty embarrassing for me. So I don't know if you want to spare me that embarrassment, but I need you, God. I mean, if this is a gift you've given me, I need you to work through me because I got got nothing right now. And, And this happens, again, like basically on a weekly basis. You're like, man, I never want to be a preacher. This sounds like a ride. But it happens regularly. I... I have to repent of any pride, acknowledge my total dependence on God, and he, and he gives me the words. He's so good. He's so merciful. He just gives me the words and, and, and works through me again. But like, So I've got a role. I've got a role in this. I need to prepare. I need to be disciplined. I need to be doing my reading. I, Brent was like 75%. No, none of those books in the library are mine. I don't read that many books but I do need to do some reading. I do need to do some preparation. I do have a job in that. But my primary role in using the gift that God has given me is to acknowledge my dependence on him, to trust in him, to be surrendered to him so that he can work through me. And the second implication is one we'll talk about more later on in the series, but but if, if it's God who does the work in and through me, then there's no room for me to have to, to, to kind of experience any kind of superiority over anybody else because of the gifts that they have versus the gift that I have. Or vice versa, for me to feel inferior to others because they've got gifts that I don't have. It's totally uncalled for, actually. Because it's the same God at work in both of us. This is Paul's other main point here, is that whatever gifts you have, it's the same Spirit who distributes them. Whatever gifts you have, it's the same God working in and through you. So if you demean or belittle another person because of the gift that they have, because you think your gift is better, or vice versa, you're actually demeaning or belittling God, on whom you are totally dependent. So there's no room for pride in this at all. This is not about you working. This is about God working. As always with spiritual gifts, it's always all about Jesus. And it leads to the third point. Just, we're, we're just verse 7. I'm just going to read verse 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. I would say this, this is like the theme verse for the whole section of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. If you were to sum up, what does Paul teach about the gifts of the Holy Spirit in these three chapters? It's this verse right here. So we're going to be touching on aspects of it throughout the next couple of months. But I, I want to focus on one word, especially here, and it's the word given. Spiritual gifts are given. Um, gifts are not just our personality traits, although they might involve that. And they're not just things that we find most natural to us. Again, they might be, but as I shared with my whole preaching thing, it was something I really believe kind of God gave me later on in my life. Gifts are impartations, empowerments 
for service, given by God. They don't come from us, they come from God. Spiritual gifts are given. And, and we can kind of work this out on, on a few different levels. If spiritual gifts are given, that means that they are not earned. They are a gift. By very definition, a gift is not, is not earned. It's not something you deserve. It's not like God goes, well, Craig's really helped a lot of elderly women across the street this past week. So I think he's going to start prophesying. Boom, there it is. That's not how it works. These gifts are not given as a wage for service. They are given as, as a gift, purely by the kindness and the graciousness and the goodness of God. They're a gift. And this is the connection with the gospel as well. One of the things that I think a lot of new Christians and old Christians sometimes too have the hardest time coming to terms with is the fact that you cannot save yourself. This is not about you being a good person, comparatively speaking. It is not about you working your way into God's favor, working your way to heaven, working your way into relationship with him. Because according to the Bible, on our own, we are condemned in our sin. We are apart from God. We are in a miry pit of our own making and we cannot climb out. There is no way we can get ourselves out. But in Christ Jesus, God has reached down and he has pulled us up out of the pit. This was all his initiative. This was his doing. It wasn't ours. He reached down. He pulled us up. He set us on the rock. He forgave us. In Christ, he paid the price for our sins, washed us clean, reconciled us to himself. Again, as Ephesians says, this is all by grace, not by works, so that no one can boast. It is the gift of God. His doing. Same deal with spiritual gifts. It's his doing. He gives us these gifts. It's his initiative. He works in this way. It's not something we've earned or deserved. It is grace through and through. And then if, second of all, if gifts are given, then it means that, that we have a certain, um, it means to honor the giver of the gift. And, and to begin with, at least, we've got we've to accept the gift. We've got to actually receive the gifts that the giver wants to give us if we honor that relationship. I uh, used this illustration back in the fall. So I'm not going to show you the video. I'm just going to show you the screenshot so that you have to search fruitlessly through every sermon in the fall to find this. So that way our view counts go up on YouTube. No, that's not why at all. But anyways, I, I shared this illustration where I gave my kids new bikes. And they were like, no, it's too scary. And I was like, well, here are, here are some helmets to kind of keep you safe. And they're like, no, we don't want it. And they just like ran out of the, ran out of the yard screaming because they didn't want to accept the gift. And some of us feel really nervous when it comes to the Holy Spirit and thinking about some of these gifts, especially the ones that we have a hard time explaining or understanding. We're kind of like, I just don't want to kind of mess around with that. I want to live like a normal, explainable Christian life. You know, just a comfortable Christian life. That's what I want. But if God is the giver of gifts and he wants to give you gifts that you might, you know, be a little bit nervous about, we, we honor him by accepting those gifts, by receiving them, by being grateful for them. And that leads to the third thing, which is that honoring the giver of the gift is, is not only about accepting it, but actually using that gift in the way that it is intended to be used. And this is, again, the connection with, with, with the gospel, with salvation. We are saved by grace, not because of good works we have done, but because of God's mercy and kindness. But he doesn't save us so that we can just kind of be like, nah, 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 we're saved and you're not. 
No, he saves us with a purpose. To share the good news of God's love in Jesus with others. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are reconciled to God through Christ. We are given the ministry of reconciliation, being his ambassadors, helping others come into relationship with God. Same thing with spiritual gifts. God has given these gifts to us for a purpose. What's that purpose? The manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And again, we're going to talk about this a lot over the next couple of months. But the gifts are given to us so that we will build others up, encourage the church, make Jesus known to the world. That's the purpose of them. We honor the giver of the gift when we use the gift in the way that he intends them to be used. I know I haven't really talked about mothers at all. So here, I'm going to invoke my mother. So it is now officially a Mother's Day sermon. Okay, do you all agree? This is now a Mother's Day sermon. So my mom lives in Oklahoma. She lives quite a distance away. She's a great mother. Uh, and, uh, but she lives far away. So she, she'll send us money. She'll just like deposit money in our bank account during the kids' birthdays or Christmas or whatever. Right? So it's a gift that she has given us. It's money uh, that is in our bank account. Technically, we could do whatever we wanted with it, right? But what would happen, like she gives it to us because we're supposed to buy something for the kids, but I'm just saying I could do whatever I wanted with it. So what if the next time we were video calling, she goes, oh, what did you get the kids? And I'm like, well, I actually got this like uh, tattoo on my neck of barbed wire. Do you like it? Isn't it a really cool tattoo? That's not going to go over well for a bunch of reasons. But the gift was given so that we would benefit our kids, not just so that I would do something really selfish and and yeah, anyways, it would never go over well with Carol. It would never happen. I just found it. I'm like, I could get a tattoo. And then Carolyn would be like, no, Craig, you're never getting a tattoo. And then I don't get a tattoo. Enough about tattoos. The <laughs> gift is given. The gift is given for, for a purpose is where I'm going with this. See, spiritual gifts are given, not earned. They are not to be used any way we want, but according to the purpose that God has for them because, again, spiritual gifts are always all about Jesus. And that's what I want, I want to get across really, really clearly. I'm going to wrap it up here, but this is, what, this is what I want you to understand as we begin this journey over the next couple of months together. It's not about you. And it's not about me. It's not about us being able to impress other people with the gifts that we have. It's not about us climbing the spiritual ladder. It's not about us exerting status over others. It's not about us being wowed or wowing others with things that are humanly unexplainable. It's not about us just exalting our own name in the world. It's about Jesus. Through and through, it's about Jesus. He is our Savior our deliverer. He is the Lord, the Lord over heaven and earth. He's our king. He's the resurrected one. He's the, he's the one who is the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is the one that the world needs to know. He has loved us, saved us, forgiven us, reconciled us to him, filled us with his Holy Spirit, given us gifts to make him known in the world. So die to your pride, die to your seeking of your own status, die to your fears and anxieties when it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit and set your eyes on him. Seek his gifts, 
receive his gifts. Depend on him fully and may he be exalted in and through you. Amen? Amen. So Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the gifts that you have given by the Holy Spirit. And, and Lord, as we, as we explore what those gifts are and, and how you have called us to use them, I pray again, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here, that their hearts would be so open to what you would do in them. Lord, that, that we would have our eyes so set on Christ that our one desire would be to know you, Jesus, and to make you known. And that whatever you would give us, Holy Spirit, to make that happen, to accomplish that, Lord, that we would receive it, that we would welcome it, that we would not resist it or run away from it, Lord, but that we would receive everything you have for us. Lord, thank you again for this text. Thank you for the grace and the mercy that has come through the cross. Thank you for your reconciliation and thank you, Lord, for your calling on our lives that we now live with a purpose. We now live with a cause to make you known, to show others what you are like. So fill us, Holy Spirit, speak through us, use us, bless us with your gifts. In Jesus' name, amen.